This is From Our Neurons to Yours, a podcast from the Wu Tsai Neurosciences Institute at Stanford University. On this show, we crisscross scientific disciplines to bring you to the frontiers of brain science. I'm your host, Nicholas Weiler. Here's the sound we created to introduce today's topic, MDMA. Why are psychiatrists taking a fresh look at MDMA? Recently, there's been growing excitement in the scientific community about revisiting the potential medical benefits of psychedelic drugs that have been off-limits for decades. Scientists are discovering, or rediscovering, applications of psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, and other compounds for treating people with depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. We have several leading experts paving the way in this field here at Stanford, including today's guest, Hi, this is Rob Malenka. I'm the Pritzker Professor of Psychiatry here at Stanford University and a Deputy Director of the Wusai Neurosciences Institute. And I run what I call a neurosynaptic and circuit neuroscience lab here at Stanford, mostly studying rodent models of various forms of adaptive and pathological motivated behaviors. So... Most people may not have heard of MDMA as MDMA. People have probably heard of ecstasy or molly as one of these Mm -hmm. drugs, but probably don't realize it was invented in the early 20th century by a drug company looking to develop drugs for bleeding disorders and then popularized by psychiatrists in the 70s because the idea was that it might help accelerate therapy. So then, of course, the history we're probably more familiar with is that it was banned in 85 and made a Schedule I drug, which means officially... It has no therapeutic use. So that brings me to to the question that I want to ask, which is that why are psychiatrists and neuroscientists getting interested in MDMA again as a way of helping people in the clinic? Well, I I think to give credit where credit is due, as you said, it was synthesized by, I forget which drug company, and then it was rediscovered or resynthesized by a very famous synthetic organic chemist named Alexander Shulgin, who worked in Berkeley and in the 70s and 80s was synthesizing psychoactive substances and then taking them himself with a cadre of friends. And from his personal experience, he decided it might be useful to some of his friends and colleagues in the Bay Area who were either psychiatrists or some form of therapist because the qualitative experience many people have had on MDMA was a drug that opened the individual up to a more positive, empathic, and perhaps even compassionate social experience. And if, if you accept that's part of the experience of MDMA, it's kind of you know, a little bit almost intuitively obvious that maybe it might be very useful for therapists as they're trying to help their patients or their clients open up, have better access to their feelings and have better 
compassion both for themselves and others. And so it started by a whole group of therapists, you know, truth be told, illegally. It was not an FDA-approved drug. It got out into the recreational community, and it became, you know, for lack of a better term, a party drug. And like all drugs, it has some positive attributes, which maybe we'll talk about, but it has some negative ones too. And then it was made Schedule One, making it very hard to study. So the, the renaissance in using it again, I mean, I think you have to give credit to this organization called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, and its leader, a guy named Rick Doblin, who I think because of its history, because there was this established community of therapists who really thought it was valuable and you know, really made it a goal to allow this clinical study of MDMA, especially for its potential therapeutic utility. So he did all the hard work of convincing the FDA to allow MAPS and the people they funded to actually study its therapeutic utility. And they decided to study it initially in individuals suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And they decided to do clinical trials where it's being used as an adjunct to psychotherapy. So the psychotherapy occurs. There's a series of preparatory sessions for the therapist to work with the individual who's suffering from PTSD um, and then take the MDMA before a therapeutic session have the therapeutic session while on MDMA, and then have a number of subsequent therapy sessions, both to understand what went on during the therapeutic session when the patient was on MDMA. And it's gotten a lot of attention because several years ago, they did what's known as a phase two trial, which is a small number of subjects And that phase two trial showed really good results. And more recently, a paper was published in a prominent journal reporting a study of close to 100 individuals with PTSD who had the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy and comparing the effects with another group of patients who had the same psychotherapy but without the MDMA. And the results from this study were striking. The individuals who had the psychotherapy with MDMA showed a dramatic reduction in their symptoms of PTSD. The reduction in symptoms lasted six months, eight months, 10 months, maybe even 12 months beyond the treatment. And And the thinking is that this is because it it helps the psychotherapy itself. Like it makes the psychotherapy more effective. Is that the idea? You know, that's my interpretation. It allows the person to re-experience the trauma in a more, you know, open way because they have a, a better therapeutic alliance with their therapist. It allows them to experience those emotions in what feels like a safer environment. And again, the, the psychological mechanisms by which this works, you know, 
I, I don't know. I'm not sure anybody knows, but it really seems to have been a very powerful therapeutic intervention. I was interested in what you said about it having these very long-lasting consequences. And, you know, in, in that study, presumably there's a, a confound between what's the MDMA and what is the psychotherapy, because you're doing both of them. You have been very deep into the field of neuroplasticity. This is your area of expertise. Is there an aspect of neuroplasticity involved in how we think that MDMA might be helping patients, whether it's folks with PTSD or potentially with autism, which I know is another area that people are looking at it for? Yeah, I mean, I think there has to be. I mean, by definition, because there was this long-lasting change in these fairly severe symptoms, Plasticity must have occurred in the brain. I mean, what does plasticity mean? Plasticity means changes in the physical connectedness in your brain. If you're a neuroscientist, most of us believe that everything about our thoughts, feelings, and behavior are mediated by complex patterns of electrical activity in our brain. And if something changes in how we're thinking or feeling or behaving, that has to be due to complex plasticity processes happening in our brain. And so, yes, the psychotherapy itself elicited some form of plasticity, and the MDMA greatly enhanced it, at least in this population of patients. Can you tell me a little bit, I mentioned earlier this case study of autism, which I know is something that you and your lab are interested in, what do we know about what MDMA is actually doing? How is it affecting these changes in the brain? And why does that make it potentially exciting for clinical use? You know, it's a good question. And like everything, the answer, everything to do with neuroscience and how the brain works, it's complicated. I'm going to change your question a little bit. What, what That's got, fair. You know, what got me very interested in studying it is this aspect of the qualitative experience that human subjects have on MDMA, which seems very commonly to almost everybody who takes the substance to make them more open to a positive, non-aggressive social interaction. And some would even say it promotes empathy in the individuals experiencing the drug. That's a little controversial. So think about that. A drug can actually make you more empathic, more interactive in a positive, pro-social, non-aggressive manner. Drugs work on proteins in the brain, work on receptors in the brain. So studying MDMA obviously will tell you something about how MDMA works, but it will also tell you something about these very important processes about human interactions, like how does empathy actually happen? If you have a drug that enhances that, that's a way of really probing that. So that's one of the reasons I became very interested in it. And, you know, we know a modest amount, you know, the audience may know there are different chemical messengers in the brain that go by the names of substances like dopamine. MDMA actually works by enhancing the release of serotonin. You know, the advantage of studying a drug like MDMA in animal models like mice is we can probe their brains. And so in my lab, we've figured out First, that MDMA causes increases in the levels of serotonin. A key region in the brain where that happens is a region by the horrible name of the nucleus accumbens. But the reason that's important is the nucleus accumbens is part of 
the reward circuitry of the brain. We've also, to speak to your question about autism, um, the reason I'm really interested in the potential of, and let me be careful here, MDMA-like drugs, because, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, like all drugs, MDMA taken on occasion in the presence of a therapist may have powerful therapeutic effects, but it's doubtful it's ever going to be useful as a treatment or a medication that is taken daily with repeated doses. It may have some neurotoxic effects. It may have some abuse potential. And we've learned from the opioid epidemic, we have to be very thoughtful and careful as drugs that have abuse potential become legalized for medical therapeutic uses. They become more available to the general public and they will be abused and they will be used inappropriately. Right. Well, and and presumably if there is a real medical use here, we want to be very careful that the lessons of the past are not repeated and there's not a backlash if people start using it on the street in an inappropriate way. That's exactly correct. And if MDMA gets approved, for example, for the treatment of PTSD, I don't think it's going to be siphoned off to the degree that opioids were, but it is something that we need to consider. So that's another reason why I'm so interested in studying it in my lab, is if we can really understand how it works, it will allow us to make better types of MDMA that have maintain a potential therapeutic efficacy while minimizing its potential toxic effects in the brain or its abuse potential. And so now let's talk about autism and why I'm really interested in that. A major feature, a diagnostic feature of individuals with some form of autism spectrum disorder is a detriment in their ability to interact in a quote a normal social way. You know, individuals can be socially withdrawn. They can have difficulty recognizing the emotions in somebody else with whom they're interacting. If MDMA is indeed a drug that opens up an individual's ability or enhances an individual's ability to socially interact and to have more in quotes, empathy for another individual with whom they're interacting. I think it's, again, a little bit intuitively obvious that maybe an MDMA-like drug may be beneficial for individuals with autism spectrum disorder. So I want to be very careful. By no means am I saying that every individual with autism spectrum disorder may eventually want to be taking an MDMA drug, but there, there may be a subpopulation. And in fact... This organization, MAPS, has sponsored a small phase two study of individuals with autism spectrum disorder, again, as an adjunct to psychotherapy for helping individuals with what are known as social anxiety disorder. And again, it was a small study, but there seemed to be some benefit. I'm more interested in the possibility of developing an MDMA-like drug that individuals who have difficulty having positive, what I would call, in quotes, normal social interactions, could take more frequently. That, that would 
include not only individuals with autism spectrum disorder, but individuals who have the diagnosis of schizophrenia who can become very socially withdrawn, or some individuals with forms of depression where they can't experience the positive aspects of a social interaction. You know, for full disclosure, I'm on the scientific advisory board of two different companies one of which has announced they are pursuing the possible clinical utility of a subtype of drug like MDMA. It's called an enantiomer. The MDMA that is currently being used in the PTSD trials is a mixture of two different chemicals. We think the the therapeutic part of this MDMA may involve one type of MDMA, and the abuse potential may be more triggered by this other type of MDMA. So if this hypothesis is true, um, only giving subjects the good type of MDMA may really have some benefit. Again, the goal of drug development is always, can we make a better drug that is more efficacious therapeutically and has less side effects, less abuse potential, less possible toxicity? Yeah, that's fascinating. It seems like such an interesting time in neuroscience that we can start to understand something that's so human, the desire and the rewarding aspect of connecting with one another. And, you know, we've got this association with ecstasy and MDMA as a a party drug. But like if we take the stigma out of party drug, it's really something that helps people connect. And so this effort to help people with PTSD through these clinical trials and looking into autism and other and maybe and maybe schizophrenia it's like trying to find a way of restoring that human ability to connect to people who who are lacking it i completely agree with you that was very well articulated and just to expand on it look at our world and what's going on in it it's not only for individuals that we label as having pathological problems with social interactions and connectedness. But I would also argue, what is more important for human happiness and the survival of the human species, increasing the ability of human beings to connect with each other in an empathic, compassionate manner? And I find that very exciting. And I think neuroscience can contribute to that. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. Yeah, my pleasure. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks so much again to our guest, Rob Malenka. To learn more, check out the Wusai Neurosciences Institute at neuroscience.stanford.edu. This episode was produced by Michael Osborne with production assistance by Christian Heiges and Morgan Honecker. I'm your host, Nicholas Weiler. <laughs>